This is Sam. This is Matt. This is Ed. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. So today on Southpaw, we have writers Ed Cannell and Matt Enton. Hi, guys. Hey. How you doing? So when I say writers, I mean plural because you guys wear many writing hats. You've written video games. You've written a movie. And most recently, you guys wrote your own comic book series, Invasion from Planet Wrestletopia. Am I leaving anything out? Uh, no, that... that uh... That encapsulates it nicely. Uh, yeah, Matt and I have our day job is the video game writing, and we've been doing that since the early 2000s. And um, I've worked on a lot of games together. So we both do it freelance. Um, so we, we work you know, on, on our own projects for clients, and we, we've worked on client projects together. And uh, the comic book, you know, Invasion Planet WrestleTopia, is, is uh, something that we started on our own. It's we, we created it. We write the scripts and we self-funded it. And um, yeah, that's what we're really excited about. Yeah, because I wanted to bring you guys on the show because, well, first of all, you guys are fellow Oregonians, or at least Ed is. <laughs> I think, Matt, you used to live in Oregon, right? Yes, I, I lived in Portland for two years and I miss it a lot. I, 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 I love Portland. I love the whole state. So you dabbled in Portland. Yeah, yeah, it's the dream to someday come back to the Pacific Northwest. So on top of that, you guys have combined my two favorite things into one, which are <laughs> comic books and pro wrestling. Yeah. And this is actually something a lot of the listeners are into as well. But maybe they haven't heard of this comic book yet. So let's start there. What is Invasion from Planet WrestleTopia? So Invasion from Planet WrestleTopia is the story about a disgruntled professional wrestler who declares himself galactic champion of the universe really to get back at his promoter, who he's been mistreated by. Uh, he cuts a live promo declaring himself galactic champion of the universe, which goes out into space and 15 years later is intercepted by a planet of alien wrestlers for whom you know wrestling is very real. And they view this as a declaration of war and invade Earth. I like how uh, you guys actually use some science into it, right? Because by the time the signal gets out there <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then comes back, it's going to be years later. But then you guys kind of use that as a plot device. Yeah, we were very rigorously uh, scientifically <laughs> accurate with all our... How far the signal would reach out into space within a 15-year time frame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or at least it's like comic book nerd logic. Yeah. <laughs> I've right. read enough sci-fi books. It's like, I don't know if that's scientifically accurate as far as like what the number of years will be. But yay, I've seen that before. Okay. It was mainly, we we really loved the idea of, uh, the you know, so the, the protagonist's name of this comic book is Rock and Roll Rory Landell, you know, who cuts this promo. And we, we wanted, we liked having the signal take a long time 
to be discovered by the Russeltopians because we thought, you know, in in the in the years in the years in between, he could just be this washed up guy. You know, he's wrestling in casinos and just drinking and his life away. And so that when the Russeltopians do invade, and everyone's in a total panic about where he is, he's just totally off the map. Now is rock and roll. Landell, is he based off of anybody? Because Landell, that's like kind of an iconic name for old school fans of pro wrestling, right? The Landell name came from Buddy Landell. Yeah. But um, <laughs> he wasn't, as a character, he wasn't specifically inspired by Buddy Landell. We, he's kind of a superstar. Billy Graham was a big inspiration for his sort of in-ring persona. Namely, because Superstar was sort of one of those guys who was ahead of his time, like Rory is, and never really got his due. He, he kind of was a little too early before wrestling became the worldwide phenomenon it would become in the 80s. And he wasn't really able to sort of seize on that sort of zeitgeist because, you know, he was sort of righted out and washed up at that point. And then sort of out of the ring, uh, Jake Roberts was definitely a strong influence on the character and his sort of struggles with uh, substance abuse. I mean, there's any, I mean, pretty much every wrestler from that (laughs) period struggled with substance abuse, but Jake Roberts in particular and Beyond the Mat were you know, big inspirations for, you know, who Rory was sort of outside of the ring. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, he could be a lot of different old time wrestlers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it is, yeah. Years later, it is pretty rough for them if they're alive at all. Yeah. I mean, so many of them don't even make it to 40. So <laughs> Rory's lucky in that regard. Yeah. I saw on John Oliver where they were talking about life expectancies of WWE wrestlers versus NFL football players and NFL football players outlive the the wrestlers. Well, NFL, you play what 12, 13 games a season tops. Whereas if you are a working wrestler, you're doing 300 shows a year without break. And uh, yeah, I mean, Yes, it's quote unquote fake, but they're doing very physical stunts and they're putting their bodies on the line every night. There's that scientific thinking again. You did the math in your head. (laughs) (laughs) So what's been the response so far? Is it wrestling fans reading it? Is it comic book fans? Or is that the same audience? Is there a lot of overlap? There's there's definitely overlap. And it's been really interesting because we've sent these comic books out for review with with two different groups. And the first is just obviously a comic book podcast and bloggers and reviewers. And, but we've also sent it to a lot of like wrestling podcasts. Cause there are, there are, there's a lot out there. And, um, from the comic book fans, yes, there's, there's some overlap or like, Oh my God, you know, like you said, you know, you've, you've taken my two favorite things and, and mashed them together. Absolutely. Um, but we've also heard from a lot, a lot of comic book fans, who say, I really, really like this. I'm not at all into wrestling or I haven't watched wrestling in like, you know, 20 years, but I absolutely love this comic book. And, um, you know, and a lot of them said, you know, frankly, I didn't expect to, to really like it, but I really, really do. So that's been gratifying. 
um, because we are trying to tell a story. I mean, it is a, a ridiculous premise. Says you. <laughs> I mean, it could happen, right? I mean, it could happen, but um, but we are trying to tell you know a story about about Rory and and you know his his journey and um, there's some there's some emotional beats you know to the story um, and of course you know wrestling fans who don't you know maybe just are, aren't really into comics have really taken to it and uh, so it's been really it's been really really cool reception has been great. So what happened first, the concept of the story or deciding you guys wanted to do a comic book and then coming up with the story? Uh, so it was, we originally, Ed sort of had the initial concept, like what if there was a whole planet of wrestlers and invaded <laughs> earth? And he had, he had that like iconic image of the cage, the steel cage <laughs> around earth. And that was sort of, you know, that was the catalyst for this whole thing, but we actually initially wrote this as a screenplay, um, which shockingly got very little interest from Hollywood. <laughs> what? <laughs> it wasn't ready. We weren't ready. Yeah, and, and honestly, I, I think there's a lot of aspects that we've maintained from that first draft of the screenplay um, to this day, but a lot of key things, especially sort of Rory's uh, you know character arc, we've really refined since then. Um, but yeah, so this this was a screenplay. We actually wrote it up as a TV cartoon pitch. And then we just kind of came to the realization that we wanted to put this out there in the world. And we didn't want to have to rely on millions of dollars and, you know, some producers money. Um, and a comic book just made the most sense. You know, we just wanted some product of our labors so, uh, what was that now? It's almost three years ago now. Ed and I sort of started looking for a creative team to work on this with. So this was concept first then, which is like the best way to come up with anything. Let the idea flourish first. So Ed, sounds like you had the vision in your head first. How long have you been carrying this idea around? Was this since childhood or something? No, um... I'm not sure exactly what, I mean, exactly, you know, you know, sometime after Matt and I were laid off from our first job in video games and we were just, we were, we were writing together and it was really fun and we were, and we were coming up with a whole bunch of different ideas. And I think I just had this basic idea that, you know, there's a planet of alien wrestlers that could invade earth and <laughs> shooting them uh, with like guns uh, or trying to, you know, stab them with knife for whatever reason would not work. Like you had to <laughs> wrestle them. <laughs> so, and then, you know, what, how, how great would it be if like the fate of our whole planet then rested in the hands of one of our own pro wrestlers? Because I'm, I, I love pro wrestling and I, and I, I love these guys, but I mean, you know, some of these wrestlers have, you know, they have some, that's some real issues away from the ring. Right. So, what if the entire fate of our planet were in like, you know, Jake, the snake Roberts hands or something. <laughs> That's bad. And, uh, and then, you know, it just, it, it, we just started riffing on it and it went from there. And I think, you know, the, um, yeah. And then it was like, you know, well, why would they invade? Why would they bother? And that, and that's how we kind of want, well, what if, what if this, what if this guy cut a promo to really piss them off, you know? And, uh, yeah, it was just kind of, it just kind of went from there. And, um, and it's it's been I mean it's been really gratifying. I mean the the comic book is it, it is 
it is the most you know accessible medium, right? Because you don't need millions of dollars to make a comic book. But also, it what excited us was, hey, we could bring this thing to life and put it out there in the world. And if nobody else cares and nobody else wants to read it, at least, at least it'll exist. Because when you write a screenplay, no one cares. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. Really, no one wants to read it. Even your mom doesn't want to read it. <laughs> A planet full of wrestlers who want to come and invade us doesn't sound like an idea. You just come up brainstorming. <laughs> uh, well, I have. So I both Matt and I were huge wrestling fans growing up. Yeah. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with it um, for a really long time. And then yeah, I'm old enough. I'm, I'm 47. I started watching probably late 70s, early 80s when I was absolutely convinced that it was real. And so it really had a hold on me for a long time. And then I think around age 14, 15, I started to kind of drift away from it. And I haven't, I haven't been a regular active fan for a long time, but I have, uh, I have a, you know, a, a, a lot of, uh, love for those, those old wrestlers and, and like Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes and, 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 uh, the local wrestlers that I grew up watching here in Portland. And so it's, it, it's something that I still I, I still love and I, you know, I still think about and, and there, and, and I, I'm, I became kind of fascinated, I guess, later in life also with, um, the behind the scenes stuff. Like I started reading a ton of books like chokehold and, and just like biography, you know, autobiographies from wrestlers where they're, they're able to talk about, you know, what it was like actually behind the scenes, you know, for the first time they're able to talk about that publicly. So I know I went through a, a real, a phase with those, with, the, with those kind of books. And I, and I think we actually stumbled. That's how we both stumbled upon the superstar Billy Graham story. So a lot of the, so they, that may have had a lot to do with it is um, still being, you know, kind of obsessed with old school wrestling of our youth. And if you read about superstar Billy Graham, he did seem like so larger than life. Yeah. He could be intergalactic for all we know, <laughs> yeah. you know, he could have done it. <laughs> He sold a he sold a poster of himself in the seventies floating in outer space. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> this may still happen here. We may. <laughs> you guys are being predictive, actually. Yeah. yeah, superstar Billy Graham may have really screwed us over. Ed, did you ever used to go to the local shows and watch in Portland? So uh, in Portland, I would watch every Saturday night live from, but it was from Salem, 40 minutes south. And I, you know, I couldn't get my dad to go anywhere near a wrestling show. <laughs> However, when Don Owens, who was like 110 years old at the time, said, uh, I am going to put on Don Owens wrestling extravaganza in Portland at the Memorial Coliseum. This is where the Trailblazers played. And at the time, it was like a 13,000 seat stadium, which at the time was, you know, a legit NBA sized stadium. And um, so he threw a big super card and I got to see Ric Flair wrestle our local hero, Billy Jack Haynes. Um, Roddy Piper broke with the uh, WWE and said, I'm going to wrestle on this show and I don't care because he, he, he had a, a lot of loyalty to Don Owens. So I saw, I got to see Piper. And uh, the Road Warriors were on the card. I remember that. And and that was just amazing. It was awesome. And I went to one at, the, at, at that same like uh, late 80s, mid-late 80s. I saw the WWF come. And I did see King Kong Bundy fight Hogan in a steel cage. Oh. 
um, and uh, I think like the Hart Foundation against the British Bulldogs, and and that's it. I mean, I got to see these two big shows, um, and I have not. Well, yeah, I have. I really haven't been to any any shows since. Although I went to one indie show in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and that was because I got to meet King Kong Bundy in person. And I still have his picture. I have a Polaroid of him here. I'm looking at it now on my desk. <laughs> There's a Polaroid of him pretending to choke me. Uh, and it's one of my, if like if my house were on fire, I would jump in after this, <laughs> after this uh, picture. Cause I love it so much. Yeah. For the listeners who don't know the uh, Northwest territory, you know, in the old regional days, right? Everybody had their territories and the Northwest regional territory. That was, everybody knew that as Roddy Piper's territory. Like he owned that territory and that's how he made his name before he got into the WWE. That's how, that's where, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's the first place he ever wrestled, no, but no, it is um, where he became a legit star. And apparently I think Don Owens even had called somebody. It might've been um, whoever was, whoever was in charge of, of Georgia championship wrestling at the time and said, you know, you got it. You got it. This guy's too good for, even for Oregon, he's, he's not going to be here for long. You gotta, you gotta call him up. And, uh, he was forever loyal to Don Owens for that. Apparently when the WWE itself would come to Portland, he would never wrestle in Portland. And, 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 and then I, like I said, like I just mentioned, he actually wrestled in Portland while he was under contract with WWF. He wrestled for Don Owens on, on a big super card, which was kind of unheard of. He actually got his start in Canada, and then from there went to the to the Oregon Territory. I don't live in Portland anymore, but even in the '90s, just walking around, <laughs> you run into Piper at places. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's that's true. Yeah, he lived out, I, I guess, in Aloha, which is a suburb, and um, you know, I never saw him walking around or anything. But he made his home here, and I guess you know his family still lives there. His uh, nephew actually visited our booth at Rose City Comic Con last night. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and we, you know we gave we gave him two free copies because you know he's related to royalty. Of course, yeah. I ran into him at the Beaver to Mall, and I said, "Oh my God, Piper, what are you doing here?" And he said, "You know, I shop too." <laughs> that was it that's all he said and he shook my hand he gave me an autograph he was super cool whenever you hear people a story about people meeting piper it, it i it's always like he was a really nice guy and oh yeah super nice so were you guys also into comic books growing up i definitely was i mean i was so i, I was actually so i my background actually is in art not in writing i actually have a bfa and you know, I've been drawing since I was a kid, and um, all throughout junior high, I draw my own comic books. And Marvel Comics was the theme of my bar mitzvah. That's how <laughs> cool I was. <laughs> and this was like 1992 when com- when Marvel was not you know the worldwide phenomenon it is now, and everyone was aware of these characters. It was about like the geekiest theme you could have. <laughs> But I was just, you know, out and proud about it. Was that during the image era? That yeah, image had just started up. But that was, you know, if you think that was right around the time like Jim Lee, uh, X Men One. What did that sell? Six million copies. It was, it was, yeah, and it was right before. And then of course Marvel went bankrupt 
like a few years <laughs> after that. But it was like you know when comic books were having like a, a, a renaissance. But if you stayed a Marvel fan after they lost all their talent, <laughs> you were like the nerdiest of the nerds. Yeah, yeah. I'm tr- what, Image recently celebrated their 25th anniversary, is it now? Yeah, they were they were sort of, yeah, they were bleeding talent at that time. Jim Lee must have gone over by that point and done Wildcats. So I was a huge fan as a kid and it's just sort of been on and off. Like there'll be like a few years where I just wouldn't read. And then suddenly I just get the bug again and buy a bunch of graphic novels and just like go to town. So it's, you know, ever since I was a kid, it's just sort of been a love of mine. So it was a pretty natural thing for me to combine, you know, wrestling, which I also watched. I've been watching since I was five years old. And comics, like they just sort of, you know, two flavors that are great together. Well, when I was a kid, Hulk Hogan and Optimus Prime in my mind were the same thing. It just seemed like (laughs) wrestling and comic books and cartoons. It was just like the same world. In my fantasy mind, they they all existed in the same multiverse. I think part of the reason it's so attractive wrestling is, you know, to kids is, I mean, they really are superheroes, right? In, in the flesh, like they, the, some of them wear masks and they're flying through the air and they, you know, get smashed through tables and they get right back up. And, um, some of them are breathing fire and shooting green mist out of their mouth. And it's, uh, it really is like superheroes and supervillains clashing together every, every Saturday. Some of them are undead. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Do you remember so, that yeah. era when the Kane and Undertaker were shooting lightning bolts at each other? Do you remember this? <laughs> I did. I did not. I missed that. I missed a lot. Uh, I, I missed the whole. You know, like I, I was still I was, watching. Yeah, I was still watching during that era. It was bad. That was bad. <laughs> Undertaker mythology changes every few years, but I, I love when he actually was. They that was the pitch that this this guy is undead. <laughs> And he derives his power from an urn. (laughs) Oh, yeah. They had that whole like kind of a weird comic book gimmick where like if you took the urn or something, he loses his power. (laughs) So, Matt, as an artist, then what did you think about the art of Rob Liefeld? Uh, (laughs) At the time or now? (laughs) That's what I was going to ask. As a kid... Did you know it was bad and then you came to that realization as an adult or you actually think he gets shit on too much and it's not that bad? <laughs> uh, as a kid, I probably did not have a discerning enough eye to recognize uh, actual quality when I saw it. And then, of course, you know, I had there, I, I experienced like a, a backlash against it, but now it's weird. I've I have uh, Marvel Unlimited, and I have read through some X Factors that Liefeld did, and now seeing his art, like I, I love it again. It makes me feel nostalgic for my childhood. Um, so I don't I don't have that revulsion that I know a lot of people have towards his work. When I, actually, my biggest influence when I was actually drawing was I don't know if you remember Simon Bisley. I, I was huge. First of all, my parents should not have let me buy these. But <laughs> I was, uh, he, when he was working for DC, he did Lobo. Oh. Yeah. Like the ultra, ultra violent run on Lobo. 
And my parents let me buy that when I was like 10, 11 years old. No. Was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Bisley uh, was, uh, you know, I didn't recognize it at the time. He, for some reason, loved to hide penises in his art. <laughs> <laughs> Like specifically in like elbows <laughs> and uh, he ended up getting fired by DC and then he ended up uh, working on heavy metal after that. That's probably like, a better place for him. Yeah. Like none of the majors would work with him <laughs> anymore. You don't say. Yeah. <laughs> Comic books was a weird thing where if you're like a 10 year old and you're kind of starting to, you know, get perverted and you wanted to see some <laughs> nudity, like you said about that kind of stuff, you would go to the comic book store and they wouldn't know if you bought like Boris Valigio or Frank Frazetta <laughs> stuff, that there was all these like nude girls in there. They're like, it's just comic books. The parents had no idea. Yeah, I had a, I had a Boris like coffee table book that I bought when I was like 12. And yeah, there's... <laughs> I would say what, like at least fifteen percent of that is our nudes. Yeah, <laughs> no one at Crown Books cared that I was nope. like a twelve-year-old buying this. What is the process of taking a comic book concept to getting a finished product? Um, so we're new at this. Um, we got some good advice before we started, but it's essentially. Uh, obviously you want to have your script done and you want to, uh, you know, write it in such a way that, um, you, know, an artist can, uh, easily take that and do some thumbnails for you to make sure that they, they understand, you know, the, the action and, and the story that's being told. And once you're good with those, they'll do pencils, uh, and, um, and if the, you know if it looks good there, the next step is they'll do inks, and then you know when they're done with their inks, your comic is drawn. Of course, it's black and white still, which for a wrestling comic is no good. You can't do a, a wrestling comic in black and white. So um, the next step is your colorist brings it to you know to life uh, with amazing color, as Marissa Louise did. Uh, Dan Scotty was the artist for our first three issues, and then Marissa Louise was our colorist. And then, of course, you know the, the artist has left space for all the word balloons, for all the dialogue, which is you know what what all which is all what any writer cares about is is their dialogue that uh, looks nice. And so the letterer uh, adds all the word balloons to all the panels and all of your your dialogue, and um, you're pretty much done. But you need to go to a real talented graphic designer. So we had we had Dave Lamphere of the Larger World Studios do our lettering, and then um, Fred Chow is a really talented graphic designer who just kind of puts it all together. And interestingly enough, that's the guy that um, really uh, is the uh, I think the unsung hero of the whole process because all this stuff comes in in different like formats and different, you know, uh, all the, all you, you, the biggest surprise to me was, you know, you think, you know, you, you draw it, you color it and you letter it. And then it, the, the last step is just, you know, easy. And it's, it's really not like <laughs> the, the graphic designer is kind of like the, uh, just kind of saves everybody from themselves and somehow makes it into a book and it makes it into an actual thing. We're really grateful to Fred. Yeah. You know. One aspect of the process uh, that I'd like to add are character concepts. When we talk to our artists, we, we usually provide them with sort of visual inspiration, but we do want to give them enough sort of creative freedom to create characters that they will have 
fun drawing and be able to take some ownership of. Um, but that's always a, that, that's a fun aspect of the process, seeing these characters we've just sort of had in our heads, like seeing their images for the first time. That's it's it's pretty special. That energy of pro wrestling, that flow, that motion has to carry over. That was the impressive part also is not only is the art good, but they were able to capture that energy of pro wrestling into the art. Yeah. I, I mean, Dan did a good job. He, Dan Scotty was not a wrestling guy, but we um, gave him a lot of magazines, <laughs> like wrestling <laughs> magazines, and he did some research and he really, I think, uh, walked away with an, a, a real appreciation for it. And then you know, on our side, um, I think again, the video game stuff helped, you know, when, when we were writing action scenes, we really tried to put some thought into it and say, okay, you know, where can they fight? We, we don't want to have, you know, uh, four or five, six fight scenes inside of all, you know, each one's inside of a bar or something. You know what I mean? We, the, the, we really paid attention to the presentation of uh, the WrestleTopians, you know, where this fight would take place, how the location of the fight would affect the action and, and just, you know, being able to see action and wrestling moves that maybe we had, we didn't see in the last fight scene. Um, again, video game, uh, work, it was really helpful in that regard. Like a lot of times the setting doesn't matter. Whereas in this, the setting did matter. Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, if you're playing a street fighter, right. You know, you want, <laughs> it's going to be a different fight inside an a, amusement park than it is, you know, at a construction site. Right. I think more power stone. <laughs> if you remember that that was a, that was a fighting game where like the environments were key you know they really utilized the environments in the fights themselves no but in street fighter right you guys had to like beat up that car in the junkyard <laughs> yeah to get those vital bonus points yes so from actually now crafting a book you could hold in your hand how do you get that to getting it published and accessible everywhere well, let's see. The accessibility part, it was kind of easy. Um, Amazon makes it fairly simple to sell a Kindle version, uh, a, a Comixology version, and, uh, you know, whatever you can do, you know, iBooks and, and some other things like that. So digital only was fairly simple. Um, the publisher part, we, <laughs> we sent it to everybody. And... Um, but when we we found out that this company Starburns Industries, so they're the company uh, behind the Rick and Morty cartoons and uh, some other uh, uh, cool stuff, a show on HBO called Animals and, and a lot of community. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, what's it? Which one? Community. Well, I don't know if they did com produce Community, but Dan Harmon is one of the founders of Starburns Industries Press. So he and, and he did Community. But I think I think they do produce Harmon Quest, uh, the an animated uh, animated show. So um, they announced that they, hey, they wanted to publish comic books with sort of a humorous bent, and we just thought, aha, you know, this could really be a match. And and uh, so we did get a, actually even a couple offers from some some other smaller publishers that we that we realized after we sent it to them that maybe that wasn't the best fit for us. Um, and so it, just, it didn't take too much courting. We had to do a little bit of courting uh, with Starburns, but it wasn't. It didn't take too long before they thought, you know what? Absolutely, let's let's give this a shot and uh, see where this goes. So, and, and it's been a it's been a good match. Is writing a script for a comic book and for a movie pretty similar? 
there, there was a period of adjustment because they, they very much sort of, if you follow the quote unquote rules of screenwriting, they kind of, um, you know, they don't want you getting overly descriptive with how to shoot the scene, right? They, you know, leave that up to the director. Whereas if you're writing a comic script, sometimes you have to be very clear, like, this is a close up. This'll, you know, this'll be a crane shot, whatever. Um, you definitely have to be a lot more descriptive uh, in the script itself. Um, whereas you can just let scenes in a movie script just go on for pages with just dialogue and no real action description whatsoever. Like even action scenes often. In a screenplay, you'll describe some of like the big beats, but I know a lot of directors just sort of, you know, like you can write some screenwriters literally will say they fight and that's it because they recognize this is going to go into the hands of an action choreographer. They're going to figure out the nuts and bolts of the fight scene. That's not my place. And they'll just keep it simple on page and just let the choreographer take over from there. Yeah. And I, I think another key difference for me was, um, you know, with a novel, I mean, I haven't read a novel, but I mean, you know, when you read a novel, um, you can take, really take your time and just meander through the story, which can be really nice in a movie. It's absolutely like every single second is precious with a comic book. It's a little bit of a, of a hybrid. I mean, you, you, you can't just meander forever because, you know, someone has to draw all this and this is, you know, it's, it's, it's a visual medium, but you, you can afford to take your time a little bit when you're telling your story. You, you don't have to be, you know, um, like a movie where, you know, every single panel is, is, you know, uh, you have to be super, 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 super precious about every moment. You can you can tell some sides. You can tell some side stories. You can you can meander a little bit, which is which is really enjoyable. I think it's, it's a great thing about comics. So actually, let's talk about your movie. What's it called, and, <laughs> and what's it about? Well, uh, so it's called Lumberjack Man, and I would say uh, the the elevator pitch there is an undead lumberjack. Uh, rises from the grave to wreak revenge on uh, those who uh, stole his pancake recipe. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, in the movie, the lumberjack man carries behind him a giant griddle stacked with giant pancakes. And when he kills somebody, he soaks his pancakes with their blood and starts to feed. <laughs> and uh it's 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 this really really funny uh i think if you look at like the poster for it you you may not um totally get this but it's a really funny uh comedy horror that and, and the story was the brainchild of um josh bear the director and matt and i had a blast working on it yeah and somehow uh you know josh bear and bill meal his producer roped michael madsen into it yeah, that's right. Uh, to to play the sort of Dr. Loomis role in the movie. But what was really funny was that like the the 
dialogue was written for a British actor because the character was inspired by, you know, Donald Pleasance's character in Halloween. <laughs> but Madsen somehow makes it work, you know, as filtered yeah. through his very Chicago accent. <laughs> yeah, we um we were not on the set, but uh in talking to Josh Bear and Bill uh Meal, they uh he had a great time uh doing the film and uh they had a lot of fun with him. So uh, apparently there's something about Lumberjack Man that he liked. Maybe <laughs> yeah, maybe we can take partial credit for that. It's just like Planet Wrestletopia. It's just yeah. kind of one of those ideas that how do you resist that? Maybe we can send him Wrestletopia and get him to bring it to Tarantino. And then, mm. you know, we'll figure it out. So how did you all end up writing this movie then? Well, Josh, I mean, so we knew Josh from before because we had worked for him on some uh, some video game projects. And actually, there, there were some of the most like fun, crazy video games that Matt and I have ever written on. So when it came time for him to, you know, to do a film, he, he was like, hey, do you want to do this? And of course, we're like, yeah. And it, what was really exciting about it was um, it was going to get made. Like he, he, he was like, you know, he had the money and he was going to make this film. So he's like, this is, this is a done deal. This is going to happen. So, um, you know, for Matt and I to work on a film that, that would actually get made was huge. And getting a movie actually made, even if it's like movie budget is like less than a million, no, it's yeah. still <laughs> super hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, and so we had a premiere, you know, and, and, the, and, and everything. And, um, James Gunn was there. James Gunn was even there. This is before Guardians, I think, came out. And uh, yeah, so Matt and I were like, I mean, we didn't, we really didn't care about anything else. We just knew it was going to be a blast and we knew the film was going to get made. And uh, it's still, I still think about it. I still wish we could, you know, hopefully there'll be a Lumberjack Man too someday, but we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you guys know how to write a movie? Is it kind of very similar to video game writing or did you guys have to teach yourself as well for this? Well, we wrote just so right like within a week or two of us getting laid off from our first <laughs> job in video games, we were both just sort of bored and twiddling our thumbs. And we just decided to start writing screenplays together. So we sort of learned the craft on our own. By the time Josh and Bill hired us to write Lumberjack Man, I, and Ed, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe we had written three screenplays. Yeah, three or four, and and they had been a real education. I remember we wrote our first screenplay, and I and it's it 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 actually. I mean, to be honest, it, it turned out really well. It was Matt, Matt and I. It was just it was a comedy, right? And um, it was just a straight up comedy. And the, after we wrote the screen, the first screenplay, we started to write a second one, and we got kind of lost in the weeds, and we're like, maybe we should read a book or two about this <laughs> before we. And and so we started reading all the you know same screenwriting books that everybody reads, right? And um, save the and, cat, Sid Field, yeah. uh, Robert, uh, what's Robert McKee. <laughs> Then it was a really interesting exercise because I could look at the second screenplay and see like, ah, yeah, like, you know, this is where we fell off the rails. But then I could look at the first one and be like, by some stroke of pure luck, we got so close to sort of the standard uh, accepted, you know, sort of, I hate to say formula, but, you know, for for screenplays, but um, it must have been somewhat instinctual, instinctual, right? Like we'd seen... Um, in fact, in preparation for one of our video games, we'd watched probably like a hundred 
<laughs> movies with the word uh, bikini or spring break in them. <laughs> for we were we were doing research for a Leisure Suit Larry game, and we watched dozens and dozens of these wild comedies from the eighties, and then we basically wrote just like we wrote just a, a, a screenplay that wasn't too far um, the genre wise from one of those films. And uh, I guess we must have, you know, by pure luck and instinct gotten, you hit the right notes. And then the, the second screenplay, we were way off the mark, but we were you know able to just kind of, you know, um, revise it and finish it and move on. And then Josh, Josh bear had enough faith in us to, um, to then tackle lumberjack man after, after all that. And, and we were willing to work for cheap, <laughs> man, you guys had a really productive unemployment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was really fun. I mean, I, 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 it was really fun writing together. And, and I think looking back on it, I, I you know, I, I had small children and I, and I was married and my children were really small. So I, I was, I was a little bit too stressed out to kind of appreciate it, but it, it was really, I mean, uh, it really helped, you know, get, when we got together and we would write, it was really fun and it really did take my mind off of, off of things, you know, at least uh, while we were doing it. How did you guys end up writing in video games? Let's start with you, Matt. Uh, so I went to Syracuse and I actually, I got my degree in computer animation and I thought I was going to be an environmental artist in the video game industry, but I did an independent study. I, you know, as a kid, and you know, I still am just like a huge, huge fan of the LucasArts point and click graphic adventures and some of the Sierra stuff, but the LucasArts stuff in particular. And along with my friend who had a programming background, we made this game called Ockers. And I did the art and the design and all the writing for it, which was like a traditional point-and-click graphic adventure. And um, sort of, you know, Ed was actually working at High Voltage at the time, but sort of based on that, um, because the sense of humor was so similar. So they were doing Leisure Suit Larry, Magna Cum Laude, sort of the relaunch of Leisure Suit Larry. Um the sense of humor definitely sort of overlapped. There was a lot of launchy humor in this game I made in college. And so I was hired as a writer designer and I really, I'd taken two writing courses in college, one in screenwriting, one in playwriting, but I really sort of learned on the job. Um, and at the time when we were working on Larry, we didn't, we weren't actually collaborating a lot. We were writing our own scripts and then every week, we would have to go into a room and do a script reading in front of like all the senior members of the team. And this is Leisure Suit Larry. So you're not just doing the script reading, you're performing and trying to make these people laugh. And if you're not getting laughs out of anyone, you know it's not working and it's sort of back to the drawing board. So it really was sort of trial by fire. And then so towards like right towards the end of the project, there we had there was a final conversation in the game right and it took it all took place on this reality dating show and uh ed and i sort of decided to collaborate on this big you know last conversation and we just really liked working together and so by the time we were ready to work on the sequel which never got released we just decided look we're gonna do all of our scripts together 
you know, like anything that's in the game, it'll be, you know, the two of us, you know, working on it like the whole way through. And, you know, individually we each do our own polish, but like conceptually the two of us are, you know, kind of laying out the bones of each scene together. And that's, it it was kind of set up how we've worked ever since. Um, The way we sort of collaborated on the unreleased Leisure Suit Larry title, which was at the time called Island Tale. So Ed, then how did you break into video game writing? Um, I'd always wanted to do it, you know, growing up, I was a huge fan of those um, uh, adventure games, especially put the ones put out by LucasArts in their early days, like Monkey Island and uh, those kinds of things. It took me a while to figure out how to do it. You know, I, I, I knew I wasn't going to be an artist or a programmer. I didn't really know what a game designer was but you know when you play those adventure games you know like somebody had to come up with all those jokes and ideas for the puzzles and write the dialogue um so i it it took me a while but when i was 29 um i had positioned myself well enough to get a, uh, my foot in the door at at uh, this video game studio as like an assistant producer so it just it took it took a lot of doing um but uh, I was able to, to break in, and from there, I was able to sort of weasel my way into a into the more creative stuff of, of being like a game designer. And um, then, the, you know, so I learned a ton there at the studio. And as as you know, the ga- the, the bar for story in games started to kind of get higher. Uh, I was able to do you know some of the writing for the games we were working on, which was great. And that's how, how I met Matt, you know, we, we needed, all of a sudden we needed like another writer for this Leisure Suit Larry game that had so so much story and and content in it. Um, and then we've, we've just never looked back, you know, um, I've worked now on, you know, that was early two thousands. And I think I've worked on 70 something games, you know, as a, as a freelancer, uh, narrative designer and, um, it's it's been really really great. I, I I'm you know we're lucky in that we love our day jobs as well. So you were mentioning earlier how you love pro wrestling as a kid, and then later on you might not have been necessarily watching pro wrestling, but you still wanted to know how the sausage was made. <laughs> you know you're reading books about it. So the same thing here. I think a lot of people want to know how the sausage is made for video games. Like how do you write a video game? Because they aren't linear story writing, right? The story changes based on gameplay, but also you are the story. So is it similar to writing like choose your own adventures? And also we don't even know how those are written. So yeah, it, it's um, certainly, I mean, it certainly varies from game to game, right? Um, some games are, are really pretty linear. You're, you're the players just kind of on, on a rail and you're just, you know, moving through the, moving through the story, moving through the game. Other more complicated projects like a Telltale game, um, you you do start like during pre-production, okay, before you're making any any real assets. Um, you know what type of game you're working on, but um, the process is a pretty collaborative one where you come up in general with 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 a story, right? And you know the ending. The ending is is you know is probably what's most important. You know where where this whole story is supposed to end, but then you want to give some freedom to the player on how to get there. Uh, 
So what you do is you really just sort of work backwards from your ending and you plot out visually like on a whiteboard or something, um, uh, uh, what will eventually look like a massive flow chart. Okay. With all kinds of branches, uh, with all, with, with, with all sorts of, of, uh, points where you can branch off into different directions, but eventually they all end up at the same place. Uh, and, and, and you may have multiple endings too, but, um, but, uh, the, so what the, the art of writing for games is, is, is basically, um, standing up in front of a room full of people, maybe with a, uh, a marker and plotting out this giant flow chart on a whiteboard that really uh, plots out every sequence of the game, whether it be a cinema or a gameplay sequence or uh, some interactive dialogue, an interactive exchange you can have with the player so that you can plot out the how, where, when, why of, of the story from beginning to end before uh, the team goes about um, creating, creating all the assets and things necessary for them. I will say one of the great experiences uh, that at least I, I don't want to speak for it, but for me, when we were working on the second Leisure Suit Larry, our producer brought in Noel Falstein and Dave Grossman, who were some of the original LucasArts employees. And we spent a full week. These were like long eight to 10 hour days. And we broke down the entire story, where it branched, what the puzzles were, how they fit into the story. It was it was pretty incredible. It was like learning, you know, at, at the feet of the masters. And that was a really sort of formative experience for me during my career. So with the flowchart, right? Do you guys ever confuse yourself then? Do you guys sometimes <laughs> like, oh my God, wait, so what happens here? Like, do you guys ever have like brain freezes, brain meltdowns, just trying to think of the game in its totality? Absolutely. So um, when you're guiding this process, let's say you're sitting in a conference room with the lead artist or creative director, uh, lead programmer, you have to be comfortable with awkward pauses and <laughs> okay we've we you generally want to work i think i mentioned this you want to work backwards right from your endings or and en your ending or endings plural and, and but but you you're you're working backwards and you get to a point you're like okay well what has to happen uh before this event can take place and it's just dead silence um it's important not to be intimidated or, or too stressed about it because it's it's so part of the process. And if you just keep plugging away, uh, eventually you move past it and and you progress. But yeah, it's it's progress comes in fits and starts. So you guys might get confused, and the people you're trying to explain it to might also get confused. But that's all part of the process. So don't take it personally. Yeah, it's all it's all part of our plan is to confuse okay. everybody. <laughs> But that you know, you bring up a good point. It is tricky. Uh, I mean, you, you, to do it, this interactive narrative with maybe multiple endings and different paths and how to get to the multiple endings. It's it's not. I mean, to be honest, in, 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 I mean, I don't want to make it sound like comic books is easy or or anything like that. But it was a huge relief to to work on a, a comic book script script which is just strictly linear. Um. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I'll just say that. <laughs> it was a nice little break. Yeah. And not just that, but it's also the sheer amount of content, depending on the game that you have to produce. Um, often, I know like the 
it's usually it's often the equivalent of five to six film scripts for a single game there's just there's so much content that needs to be produced or like a season of television yeah yeah because if if you think about even beyond just the cut scenes and the narrative there's voice calls there's the little you know things the characters say within the game itself and you have to have five to 15 things they say if you walk up and say hello to them or five to 15 things that they say if you punch them in the face you know and and that multiplies you know just a little incidental pedestrian walking around the game world i know i you know i'm working on a game right now and the pedestrians these are not named characters have 250 plus lines themselves so (laughs) gamers might be thinking oh man being a video game writer that sounds like an easy job (laughs) i could do that but it actually sounds like a lot of work yeah (laughs) Like in the case of these pedestrians, so I've, you know, for this game in particular, I've written, uh, I think I wrote 25 pedestrians and you think about, okay, like what amusing thing can I write for them responding to using a vending machine, for instance. And, you know, you'd think it gets easier, but when in fact it gets harder because you have to look back okay, what were the voice calls I used for the pedestrian using a vending machine? And you have to come up with five new lines each time you write a new pedestrian persona. So yeah, it's it, it, each game you work on presents interesting sort of unique challenges. And every game's sort of very different. I mean, there's, there's a base of knowledge that I feel like both of us can draw from when tackling a new project. But you know, every game I work on presents sort of like new, there's new, there's new sort of storytelling opportunities and problems that I've never really tackled before. So, you know, I, this is just as new to me as it is to everyone else on the team. Yeah, yeah it is a bit of a marathon. You have to have some mental um, uh, toughness, I think. You just stick with it, and, uh, and and you know, being a game writer, you're you're not, <laughs> I, I, at least in my opinion, I, I don't think you're you're nearly as important to the whole process as a writer on a film or in a, in a, the writers' room or of a TV show or certainly a comic um, comic book. You you, you are just um, you're a part of the team, and depending on the game, it can be an important part, but um, you, you don't have this status that maybe. You, you, you looking at you know writers of other mediums might have or you think they they might have um you're, you're you're just one of the one of the gang and and when they decide to cut an entire level including all the cinemas in that level then you just got to deal with it that <laughs> you don't get to say actually now i have more respect for the script of the non-playable characters because <laughs> some, somebody spent a lot of time writing even like those little blurbs of like thank you or do you want this magic potion <laughs> yeah and, and the thing is like people don't really notice like how, they'll notice if they're hearing the same voice call over and over again they won't really be like, oh wow, yeah, this NPC has so many different responses to when I, you know, to to X situation. But if you just like, if the NPC has like a total of like fifty lines and they're hearing the same voice call fire over and over again, they will notice and it will upset them, and they'll probably write something, you know, in their <laughs> Metacritic their Metacritic review about that. <laughs> yeah. So basically. 
<laughs> if you do a bad job, you'll hear about it. If you do a good job, they won't even notice. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys have done the trifecta of nerd fantasies, <laughs> right? <laughs> writing video games, writing a movie, and writing a comic book. So what advice do you have to nerds out there on breaking into any of these fields? Oh boy, that's a, a tough one. I, I I will I will give advice sometimes, you know, when asked, and I think it's about um, uh, positioning and uh, positioning portfolio and persistence is what I tell people. So if you want to be a writer of comic books uh, or video games, um, congratulations, you are one. You know, you don't need anybody's permission. But uh, you need to look like one. So you you create a website and a LinkedIn profile or whatever else that um, you know uh, positions you as as a as a writer. Uh, but you need, do need a portfolio. Um, go out and get experience doing the thing that you want to do. So if it's games, get together with some indie people making games that you know maybe have some story and and could use a writer and just offer your services or or go to something like twine which is i think it's a free uh tool that you can use to create um interactive you know text uh games um you need to create it's not enough to say that you want to be a game writer you need to um you need to love it so much that you sh- that you're actually doing it you know, um, even though no one's paying you for it. And then when you have a portfolio and, and, and you, and you are positioning yourself as a game writer, then it will, you know, come down to persistence. It'll just, it'll come down to, uh, networking, uh, as, as best as you can, as much as you can in the most professional manner that you can and cold calling people, you know, to see if, if they need a writer and, taking jobs that maybe aren't the most glamorous at first, but um, if you do a great job, uh, the industry is very small, word will, word will spread, and you're on your way. That's the that's the 10 cent version, I guess, of what I tell people. Anything you wanted to add to that, Matt? No, I, I second everything Ed says. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would also say, um, if you can afford to, go to GDC, go to PAX, go to the conferences where the developers will actually be. E3 is probably a little too busy and they're sort of, you know, more interested in promoting their product to the press. Uh, I, I think those are just invaluable places to network and actually, you know, so you're a living, breathing person to these people rather than just a resume they received, you know, in their work email. So it sounds like out of these three scripts, like movies, that's the hardest industry to break into. And we, I would say we have not quite broken into film or <laughs> comics yet. We, we did one movie and that happened to grow out of a professional relationship we already had. And this is really our first comic. Um, We'll see. Hopefully, this will lead to you know other opportunities for us within the industry. Um, but yeah, Ed really it was it was Ed's persistence that I think got us you know built this relationship we have with Starburns now. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, guys. So, what's the best way to find both of you and also to find Invasion from Planet WrestleTopia? All right, find Invasion from Planet WrestleTopia on Comixology right now. Issues one through three are up, and issue four is coming very soon. Uh, you can find us 
on Twitter at SBP underscore comics. Um, and we have a suspicious Tumblr where you can see a preview of all three of our first issues. You can find suspicious behavior productions. Uh, suspicious behavior productions, excuse me, is our uh, Matt and I as a company we set up to promote our comics. You can find us on Facebook as well and keep track of, of things there. And um, you can find the comics on Twitter and come say hi to us online. All right. I'll include all that in the show notes. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thank Sam. you. 